This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Health and Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. So for now, hey, our fearless friends, here's Lisa Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so very much for joining me, rejoining me again on this lovely Friday morning. My name is Lisa McDonald, host of Living Fearlessly with the Contact Talk Radio Network. Listenership spans to 145 countries, 220 TV radio terrestrial satellites, and the potential for millions of iTunes downloads. Once again, we are joined by yet another phenomenal guest on this Friday morning. So who is my guest of today? Well, my guest is a brilliant woman by the name of Emily Burmes. Emily is an experienced human capital consultant with deep expertise helping executives navigate new role assimilation at the officer level. Emily has extensive experience with VP through C-level assimilation, primarily in medium and large corporations. Emily successfully consults across multiple industries, including biotech, pharma, CPGs, banking, commodity, all in Fortune 500 environments. Emily possesses significant experience in life sciences, healthcare, health insurance, technology, advanced manufacturing, and mining in the publicly held mid-cap sector. Emily utilizes a truly interdisciplinary approach, which combines more than 15 years of business experience as a partner-level management consultant and executive coach with applied social science principles to create elegant solutions for tough organizational and human capital challenges. Emily provides data-driven solutions that are practical, powerful, and demonstratively effective. Emily's accomplishments include having designed and led executive assimilation program to increase success of new to role officer appointments in the financial services industry, achieved 100% success rate where industry standard is less than 60% Fortune 500, having designed and led a successful culture change initiative for an international mining company leading to dramatic improvement in engagement data third percentile to 76th percentile improved customer perception and dramatically better financial results. Stock price rose 300% in three years, Fortune 1000. Having successfully implemented executive coaching programs used for a variety of executive needs in healthcare, biotech, pharmaceutical, CPG companies, Fortune 1000, Fortune 500, venture capital privately held. 
having co-developed a social science research instrument published in peer-reviewed scholarly journal still widely used in research today. My goodness, that's quite a repertoire. How are you, Emily? Welcome to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. I felt really good until I heard all that, and I just want to nap. Well, you know, it's funny because everybody who I interview, where I start off giving the listeners and eventually the podcast subscribers some backstory to uh, understand the insights of who it is I'm showcasing, oftentimes when I turn it over to welcoming uh, my guest onto the show, they're like, is that me you're talking about? Is that me you're describing? Did I really accomplish all of that? And yes, you did. So this is why you're on my show. And I just want to say congratulations on all your accolades, all your success, and just being a very staunch, savvy businesswoman. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. It's been it's been a fun journey, I'll say. It's been good. Well, I bet. So everybody who follows me, which I'm very grateful for, knows that my style and my approach to interviewing my guests of each week, it's very organic and unscripted. I think it makes for a much more authentic conversation. But the one thing I do like to start with is uh, the standard question of how did you know and what was the epiphany or aha type moment that really crystallized for you? This was the path that you were intended to be on and that these were your inherent strengths. Mm, that's a great question. So it takes a little context, I think, to, to understand sure. the, the impact of this moment. But um, so I grew up in um, in a house with uh, a dad who worked for GE at the time. And this is, you know, in the 70s. So, you know, if you if you don't recall sort of the leadership ethos, you know, from that decade into the 80s, it was I think their unofficial tagline was like, we eat our young. Mm-hmm. And the culture was um you know, pr- pretty intense. And and if you think about, you know, negativity and, and practices can can roll downhill. That's a nice way to say it. Yes. And um, so my dad happened to be a machine shop operator on third shift. And, um, you know, my my memory of, of those years was that he seemed pretty unhappy with his work. Um, he seemed, I would describe it now as being sort of a, a disengaged, demoralized, probably a disruptive employee at the time. Um, he was often on unemployment. The economics of that job were very unstable. And so, you know, we lived in a neighborhood where, you know, I, I vividly recall him coming into my room at night and nailing my bedroom windows shut because he wasn't there at night and the neighborhood was pretty bad. And it was the only way he felt that he could really keep us safe was just to basically like nail us into our rooms. And, um, and, and it was scary, right? It wasn't a good feeling to feel like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I can't, I can't even open my window and it's, you know, 90 degrees out. But, um, so, you know, just my memory of him as a, as a man, and he was a good father, he was a good husband, but you know, the, those kinds of working environments certainly take a toll on people and it was visible and palpable and, and it made me sad, honestly. And so, you know, uh, fast forward through, I didn't go to college right away, but eventually I did go to college and, um, I was in a class where they talked about organizational communication and my favorite professor ever, who I ended up working for for a long, long time, um, was talking about organizational cultures and how some cultures are collaborative and some are learning and some are, you know, um, pretty toxic and some are fun. And, and it, it, it was that light bulb moment as, you know, probably a 20 year old where I went, you mean you can have a job where you affect corporate culture mm-hmm. in a way that differently impacts the human beings that work there? having this sort of vivid understanding of how what happens at work comes home. And I knew in that moment, you know, and it wasn't a straight path to consulting Um, because as a 20 year old, I had no idea how I would ever end up in a consulting firm. And I live in a small market, so we don't have Booz Allen here. We don't have McKinsey here. Right. And this is home for me. So 
um, it, it was not a straight path, but that was the moment that I knew that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make companies better so that the not just the people at the top have a better existence, but more importantly for me, the people at the bottom with the least power and the least mm -hmm. control have a better existence. And then hopefully that, you know, goes home with them at night as well. Fantastic. Well, what I want to say is I very much appreciate you referencing your recollections of your dad as the opener, because oftentimes when people talk about what set them on the stage for the trajectory of their journey, sometimes people often err on the side of, you know, this was a perfect role model for me. But sometimes, and not to say or suggest that your dad wasn't, but sometimes the clarity comes from okay, that's what I don't want to experience. That's what I don't want to repeat in my life history or my life journey. Um, so I think it's very important when we recognize some of the criteria from our growing up or our tangible, intangible mentors, you know, kind of deducing that down to, okay, I like that for what's happening in that person's life. And I can see that very well blending with my own. Mm -hmm. But I also take a look over here and I see that that's very much what I, I wish to choose to avoid going mm -hmm. forward. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's very powerful for the listeners, too, when it comes to making decisions about anything, whether we're talking mm -hmm. about business or we're talking about personal relationships or whatever the case may be. So thank you for being raw and candid about that and opening up with that. Yeah. Um, so going back to, I want to segue back to uh, something that I cited in your bio. So when you talked about, you know, some of the organizational and human capital challenges, Emily, what for your expertise are some of those organizational and human capital challenges that people are coming to you with? Um, good question. All, all kinds and flavors. Um, so, you know, what's interesting about consulting and, and we do some work on sort of the, the, the global scale, meaning we're looking at the organization in, in a big picture, but much of what we do is actually small picture, meaning it's one person who mm -hmm. is perhaps underperforming or they're new to role and they need support. And, you know, what I see in corporate America is that, you know, all the, all, all the dysfunction and kookiness that we, you know, grow up learning, if we don't get our issues sorted out as leaders, eventually that, that, that dysfunction will show up at work as you, as more, repeat, more people report to you, as you have larger influence in the organization, as you uh, are standing in a, in a larger limelight, you know, whatever uh, p personal dysfunction you have, it's, it's gonna get magnified and become more visible over time. So, you mm -hmm. know, if you're off in a corner making a widget, your dysfunction is, is, is invisible. But as you manage people and then direct people and then lead, you know, large teams of people, if your level of emotional intelligence and personal functioning and, and leadership skills um, aren't good, eventually that, that stalls people's careers. And so, you know, I feel like 80% of what we're doing is really identifying, okay, where's this person in this role? Where are they adding value? Where are they not adding value? And nine times out of 10, if, if there's something disruptive about their work behavior, it's, it's interpersonal. It's based mm -hmm. on how they deal with people. It's based on how they're managing their own fears and anxieties. It's pulling someone who, you know, might be very competitive, but they're bombastic and abusive to, you know, to others, that they're so competitive, they can't collaborate effectively and, you know, efficiently with others, that they have big blind spots in their own, you know, sort of impact on others. So they might have these wonderful intentions of being a good leader, but what they do is completely ineffectual. So there's a way that, you know, we're walking alongside them on their life journey, just in that corporate setting where, you know, okay, this is where you really shine, but this is where you're really, um, 
impacting others negatively. And, and what I find so fascinating when I'm, you know, assessing executives, Mr. Interviews, right? You ask enough people enough questions, you get a snapshot. Mm-hmm. And and often, even if they don't like necessarily the feedback, I mean, that, that's the fun part of my job, right? Is helping people <laughs> accept things that they don't want to actually know. So those, those can be quite colorful conversations. But, you know, when people can really wrap their head around it, you know, nine times out of 10, you know, the person will say, gosh, my wife could have told you this exactly, or my husband could have told you this exactly, like, you know, who we are at work and who we are at home are the same. It's just, we're working in that corporate environment to help people evolve as leaders. But, you know, ideally, I hope the things we help them evolve into go home too. Wonderful. Okay. So I had a few different simultaneous questions come to mind as you were talking. So I'm going to try and hold all these thoughts. First one I'd like to start with is, you know, for you to occupy, be in the position as a leader yourself and going into these companies and working with the top down, you know, you have to have pretty much uh, developed thick skin yourself because you are you are giving people the, the truth and the nuts and bolts of things that they aren't necessarily receptive to, or perhaps there's a level of subconscious denial, or uh, maybe they feel that by having the conversation, their job is in jeopardy. So they yeah. kind of, you know, feel backed into a corner and they don't necessarily see it as an opportunity for growth and learning just by being transparent and honest and assuming some responsibility and accountability. So when some of those situations go south, uh, mm-hmm. which I'm, you know, because I too have done performance appraisals and things of that nature, and, you know, you're working with the myriad of emotions and people's paths mm-hmm. and people's coping mechanisms and defense mechanisms. So for you to be in a position to honor uh, integrally what it is you do for a living, regardless of somebody's response to you, how do you stay in the zone so that you know that you're being professionally integral regardless of the results or the outcome? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly a muscle that I've had to develop. You know, I've been doing this for almost 20 years now. And, you know, I will say, um, you know, in the earlier years, I'm by nature, I'm a very um, sensitive person, which mm-hmm. makes you a very perceptive person, which is dangerous yes. in a career like this, because you're in the heat of it. I mean, you can have someone, you know, dressing you down and from in front of a room of 25 people, you can have someone in a one-on-one context being, you know, very threatening and, and, you know, swearing at you because they're upset that they don't, they don't want you peeking. You don't want them. They don't want you peeking under the tent. Right. Right. So, um, so it's just, it's a muscle. And I think, you know, there, there was some work that I did personally, um, actually when I was coming out of my divorce in my, you know, early to mid thirties, and it, it helped me really get to a place of, of, of very solid self-trust. Mm-hmm. And to me, what, what evolved out of that work was, it made me a much better consultant because self-trust to me, once you develop it is about, you know, trust, trusting yourself to be with the truth, trusting yourself to tell the truth, the unpopular truth, the truth that, you know, people don't want to hear in a, in a kind and loving way. Right. And yeah. trusting that whatever that person does, whatever that reaction is that you can handle it. Mm-hmm. And so I really try to focus on, you know, I, I believe that they need this information. I believe that, um, this is my, this is literally my purpose in life. I think, you know, some people, you know, they, 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 they believe their life's purpose is to be a mom or a wife or a, you know, or an astronaut, you know, this is, re- and I am a mom and I am a wife, but this is really my life's purpose is to do this work in this context. And 
I've just, I've known that my whole life. Well, since I was 20, first I wanted to be a ballerina and that didn't work out very well. But, you know, once I, once I was introduced to this line of work, I knew for sure it was my absolute purpose. And so, you know, the courage for me, because, you know, all of us have fear. It's not fun to get screamed at by an executive that's furious that you know, mm-hmm. uncovered some things that he may not like, but, um, but I can be with that emotion because my intent is to help them get to a place where they can use the information versus react to the information. And and usually I can, but that means having to be witness to some, you know, uncomfortable emotions and some uncomfortable behaviors, but that those, those reactions don't actually have anything to do with me. They want to sometimes make it about me or my processor mm-hmm. or, or what have you. Um, but 99% of the time I can get them past the feelings of the experience of vulnerability of being assessed in that way and helping them get to the place where they can use the information. And I think because I'm, I'm not, I, I can be assertive as heck if I have to be like, no one's going to you know push <laughs> me around per se, but yep. in my work, like I try to do the tough work in a loving, supportive, clear way. And I think most people can feel that once they get past their own sort of experience and reaction. So um, and, and it's my pleasure to do that. Right. I, I love mm-hmm. it when, you know, three sixties are like, well, Hey, well, I had no idea. I was so amazing. And I'm like, I know, isn't that great? But, <laughs> you know, those are fun conversations that I actually find deeper meaning in, in the people that are struggling, because I know if I can get them to where they understand where the struggle is, we can actually help get them past that. And then their impact on their organizations will be better, which goes back to the story. When I was little, I need them to be the healthiest, highest functioning executive they can be because mm-hmm. they touch too many people and too many families not to fix their issues. Beautiful. Fantastic. Good job. So mm-hmm. in terms of your longevity for what it is you've done and knowing that the culture of leadership has changed and knowing that this is partially what your role is in changing people's mindsets and the way that they adapt and they pivot uh, to keep up with the times, whether we're talking about uh, boomers and Gen X and millennials all having to play nice in the sandbox together uh, and kind of getting one to understand the other so that they can move the mission forward. Uh, what for your uh, your journey as a professional, knowing that you're very staunchly committed to personal growth, personal development, and imparting those strategies to other people to enhance not just the profit profitability of their business, but the relationships, the di- dynamics uh, within in-house. So what has changed for you strategically in the way that you've honed your approach, your intervention uh, with people so as to keep up with those changing times and the culture of what it is today? Mm-hmm. Great question. I, I, and this may not be quite the answer you were looking for, but this is what's most relevant in my practice right now. So what we're seeing organizationally is that, you know, the baby boomer population, and maybe be misquoting it, but I think there are 80 million people, right? Mm-hmm. Really big, really big, robust generation, very large. And, you know, they, they have been and continue to retire out of, you know, corporations um, pretty quickly. And what we know generally, generationally is that Gen X is about half the size of that population. So I think they're, you know, if it's 80, it's, it's 50, you know, 50, if it's eight, it's five, five billion, million, whatever, but roughly half the size is my point. And so you've got an entire generation and I'm a, I'm a proud Xer, but you know, you've got an entire generation that population size, we have half as many bodies to take the same amount of roles that baby boomers were occupying. 
So mm-hmm. there aren't enough of us. And so what we're seeing in terms of the talent pipeline is that while a baby boomer's career tra- trajectory might have been sort of slow and steady wins the race, you stay in a role three, four, five, six years, you get a promotion. Same thing, repeat. And because there aren't enough Gen Xers, the career trajectory, we go up, 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 up every, you know, about 18 to 18 months to 24 months now. And we're dragging the millennials behind us because there aren't enough of us. Now, um, millennials about split the difference between baby boomers and Gen Xers. So there, there are more of them, but they're so darn junior compared to the baby boomers. And yet they've got to get pulled up through that organization to fill some of those critical roles. So I just had my first uh, millennial CFO a couple of years ago. And I thought, okay, here we are. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the, they have to come to the dance because there aren't enough executive ready. The, the executive ready population is so small. And so the war for talent that we've been hearing about for 20 years, which no one's done anything about, well, it's here now. And so, you know, the, the biggest change that we've made in our, in our firm is really to help because people are getting executive level promotions faster and faster. They have, you know, they're younger, mm-hmm. they have less experience. They've had fewer uh, previous roles. They've had fewer cycles of learning. They've got less relative maturity. They only stay in role about 18 months anyway. And it takes about 12 months just to get your arms around it. As soon mm-hmm. as you get your arms wrapped around it, you've got six months. That's impressive. You didn't fail. We'll, we'll bump you to the next level. And so, you know, historically, we've seen the fail rates in organizations hover around 40%. We're seeing that stat rise right now. It's about 40 to 50%, depending on who you ask. Um, and because this trend toward faster, faster promotions is getting worse, not better, as the baby boomers continue to retire, the chances for executive stumbles or failures at some point in their, you know, officer level journey is going up, not down. And so for us, you know, that's become really about 40% of our, of our practice is, is proactively assimilating these executives into roles to, to, to diminish how often they fail. Because mm-hmm. if they, if they fail, first of all, it's about a two X times their salary cost to the firm. So if you've got a you know, a, a low to mid-level exec making two fifty to you know five hundred thousand dollars a year. If they fail, that's a half million to a million dollar cost to that company, and that's just for one person. To so think about, you know, half your population is going to fail. You've got maybe a hundred officer officers in your organization. They're rotating every eighteen months. <laughs> it's it's absolute mayhem in terms of you know failure, and so the cost is extreme to the organization, but then you think about the person that's in that situation and as someone who's coached a fair amount of these folks, you know, they uprooted their kids out of their schools. They, their spouse had to quit their job. They come across country. She takes this amazing role with incredible pressure. If she doesn't nail that assimilation mm-hmm. and she gets, and she gets, you know, fired or she realizes she can't, you know, move her business agenda. She realizes she's failed to assimilate. She can't do it. Well, it's it, the cost to her self-esteem, her sense of self-worth, the way it looks on the resume. How do you story that? Okay, my spouse quit his job over this. I've uprooted my kids. What's the likelihood I'm going to find another job like this in this market? It's just you know the the toll to humans across, and then the teams, right? The teams go, mm-hmm. hey, we got a new boss. We like her. We don't like her. He's amazing. We don't like him. And, and, and the cost that it takes on that team, it's like, oh, and now they're gone again. And now we get another person in this role. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the cost of disruption in this space, just mostly because of the generational size differences, is extreme. And it's not that hard to make it better. Um, 
So what's what's the solution to that? So what's the solution to that? Knowing that this is going to be an ongoing dilemma, perhaps, or a challenge that people are going to be faced with in in corporate America, you know, how do we eradicate that? How do we get people assimilated from the top and the bottom so they meet in the middle for the sake of meeting the quotas, for uh, meeting the bottom line, for, uh, you know, customer satisfaction, repeat customers, uh, productivity, profitability. Mm -hmm. What is the solution for that? Because, you know, we are birthing new generations of people we know that there's tons of people who are on the cusp, if not already retiring, uh, and all these job vacancies, but the people coming up don't necessarily have the advantage of knowing the different myriad ways in which you have to think like a leader in order to effectively interact with everybody to get them rising to what they have to do and do effectively for the common good of all. So wh- how do we how do you how do you approach that? It's better onboarding. So I think onboarding, and we only work officer level and above. So I, I, the same problem exists at lower levels of the organization. I know it. It's just not the space that we work in. But onboarding, mm-hmm. and I know even from friends that have taken jobs where, you know, and we're talking, you know, low level VP and, you know, mid sized companies. And they walk in and it's like, yeah, onboarding was supposed to be a half day with the CEO and a half day with HR. And I got, you know, 20 minutes with the CEO and then they just kind of said, good luck, figured out. I didn't even have a garbage can in my office. <laughs> like <laughs> these, these, these are our onboarding stories. And I, I don't know that it's that much better for officer level, but, you know, our approach, it's not complicated to get it right. So we just interview folks that are close to the function that the new executive took. So if you're the new CFO of a business unit, I'm going to talk to the CEO of the business unit. I'm going to talk to your boss. I'm going to talk to your peers. I'm going to talk to your direct reports. I'm going to get some sense of what was the history behind the person that left this role. Mm-hmm. What's been happening in the past four, five, six years? What's your team been through? How's their state of morale? Are they feeling good or are they, you know, bitter, resentful, and change fatigued? Um, mm-hmm. What's your charter? How much change does the organization want you to initiate? And how fast do you have to do that? Because often execs come in and uh, I'm not going to write a book, but if I did, it would be about this. When execs come in, they so often come in thinking that whatever they did in their last role that made them successful is appropriate for what they're doing in their new role. And they get on, on a couple of fronts. One, they get the charter run. So they think of themselves as, well, I'm, I'm kind of a turnaround guy. Well, if you take a role that's beloved and everyone's really happy with it and you start dismantling it because you're the change guy, you're just going to irritate everybody. Mm-hmm. And they often, too, come in without any context. So they'll behave in a way that doesn't have any um, connection to the culture that they're working in. So if they come from a very aggressive culture and they come into a more collaborative, thoughtful culture, they feel like a bull in a china shop to those folks. And so they can get eradicated, not just on getting your charter wrong, you're changing things we don't want you to change, or we need you to change everything and you're not changing enough that can go away. <laughs> and then their style is like such an affront to the new culture that people just reject them socially. And when they get rejected socially, their business agenda, by the way, even if it's a good one, also gets rejected because they can't build the trust and the... the mm, the, the, the willingness to have shared objectives that they need to actually move that business agenda. So mm-hmm. then I call it organ, re- organ rejection. It might be a perfectly healthy heart, but if the body says that the body doesn't want it, the heart's not going to be able to do its job because it needs the veins and everything else. So, you know, this is what I see when executives just fail to assimilate culturally. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they can fail to understand the team that they have on their hands. So they're trying to move mountains with this team that's really low talent. They may have a team that's super talented, but they're demoralized. And they've got to address those demoralization issues. Um, so, so yeah, so we figure all that out with them through just lots of interviews. We spend some time um, with their new team because the new mm-hmm. team is afraid. So here's this new leader and she seems okay, but what are her standards? What are her norms? What's going to get on her bad side? How do I stay off her bad side? How do I make her happy? How does she give feedback? How does she, how much communication does she want via what channels? Like they're so just reading the tea leaves, trying mm. to figure out how to make this new leader happy, how to meet expectations that their productivity really stalls quite dramatically. And if you just get these humans in a room for four hours and hash it out, mm-hmm. All of a sudden, all the ambiguity goes away. The uncertainty goes away. They may like what they learn. They may not love what they learn, but at least they know what reality is. And truth truth is about being in touch with reality. And then you can assess, I like the new reality. I don't like the new reality. But then you know you have a choice to make. But when you don't even know what the new reality is, it's crazy making for folks. And so, you know, we find that just that session helps. So they've, you know, so they're they're clearer on the charter, they're clearer on the culture, they're clear with their team, they're connected to their team. We give them coaching to help keep them from doing stupid things because when people are afraid and when people take new roles, they are afraid. Make no mistake about it. They can have Harvard MBAs and executive presence for days. They're still shaking in their boots about 90% of the time. About 10% of the time, they're like, no, I've got it. Most of the time, they're scared. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's from McKinsey sites that 76% of executives feel unprepared for the role that they're going into. Not <laughs> underprepared, unprepared. Wow. So they're afraid. And when people are afraid, they tend, I mean, you, you study fear for a living, so I'm sure you'll yes. have some insights on this. But when people are afraid, they become non-strategic. They can become reactive. They can overcompensate for their egos feeling too fragile. And so those behaviors can be, wow. There's another rising star right next to me. I bet she's being eyed for promotion. I better hide information from her so that I look more important, so that I look more promotable. And these are normal people that act this dysfunctional way. <laughs> totally. Well, I mean, one of the, yeah. I, they're just everyday Joes, right? This is the crazy making behavior that they come up with. Right. Well, we also know, too, that fear is immobilizing. So you could get somebody coming into the position who's scared to make a decision. And indecision is what kills. It's not making the wrong decision. It's making no decision. A hundred percent true. Yeah. So, you know, when we help them lay off their charter, they go, oh, this helps me be more decisive because someone other than me says you're in the right ballpark. We're not giving them directions. These aren't mandates, but it's here's the context. You know, does this mm-hmm. fit with what you're learning? Yes, but it makes me more confident that I, I am learning what I'm supposed to be learning and that there are no like landmines that I'm not finding. It's like, no, we're helping you find landmines. And so <laughs> then they can very confidently start making decisions in right time. And mm-hmm. um, you're, you're, to your point, you know, people, uh, the fear responses, right? People can get aggressive when they don't need to be. They can mm-hmm. freeze and get immobile and not make decisions. They can become very appeasing. Whatever my boss says is what's going to go. But what the boss is saying does not match what your internal customers want, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we help them in the day-to-day, situation-to-situation, go, yep, I know your instincts are saying to, to, to go to war with this guy. Totally get it. And let's mm-hmm. map that out. What does that look like you know, over the course of 18 months? And you just get them to think more strategically about the impact of those choices. And then they see it and they're like, hmm. 
wow, that might get ugly, you know, okay, what's a different approach? And you just walk them through the different approaches of how to handle things that get to their wisdom instead mm-hmm. of their fear, that get them to thinking about what's best for the organization, what's best for the organization overall, because you might run a business unit, but guess what? You all report to the same CEO. Mm-hmm. So how about you don't sabotage that guy to, to move your agenda? Because if you're actually thinking about the company in general, that's not healthy for the company. So, <laughs> You know, and again, these are not mean people. They're normal people, but that's what fear does. It, it really um, makes you really warps our thinking. It absolutely yeah. makes people irrational. And then they make these crazy corporate choices. Um, they create a lot of noise and chaos and damage in the meantime. And guess what? What suffers? The business results. So to mm-hmm. me, yeah, that's the big that's the big push right now for us. So again, okay. it's it's simple. We just do three little things for them. But the stats so far. And we've probably assimilated close to 40, um, all officer level, almost all Fortune 500, and they've all been successful. And Congratulations. I, don't pick, I don't even get to pick the person. Whoever they hire is the person I've got to help get there. So it's not like I'm <laughs> magically going, well, I'm a better recruiter because I don't know anything about recruiting, actually. It's mm-hmm. whatever process they were already using was fine. They just needed help onboarding. And I think that's across the board in all organizations at all levels. Absolutely. Fantastic. So let me ask you this, Emily, you know, do you think, let's talk for a moment about educational systems. Do you think the curriculum is at this point advancing and prepping people properly for the workforce so that they can occupy and go after these top positions? Um, What's the relationship between academic institutions and the reality of the job force and what needs to change? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't have a super informed opinion because I, I don't work in education. I did work in higher ed for 13 years, but mm-hmm. that's been but that's been some time ago. My my feeling in higher ed was twofold. I think um, the the big thing that stands out to me is I remember because I, I directed a communication program, and it was a program that all students had to take. Um, it was a class. Um, that all students had to take before they graduated. So it didn't matter if you were an engineer, it didn't matter if you were a nurse, you, you know, early education, you had to take this class. And it was really basic stuff, like basic, um, basic public speaking, basic interpersonal communication, basic, you know, te- communication in teams or groups, that kind of thing. And, um, and I do remember, you know, toward the end of my tenure there, having to fight the fight that somehow communication didn't matter anymore. And like foreign languages were saying, well, we teach the same thing, which is, I mean, and I'm, I'm a big fan of people taking foreign language for cultural reasons and, mm-hmm. you know, for lots of good reasons, but there was a push so hard away from communication, sociology, some of these things that really help us negotiate our, our families and our work lives and relationships and society and to understand it and a, and a hard push toward STEM, which, you know, makes sense in a sense from the economic standpoint, we need more people in STEM. And again, we have such a, you know, such smaller generations, you know, we need mm-hmm. those jobs. I know, I know in the clients that I serve, we're so hard pressed to get certain types of talent that are, that are highly specialized scientific wise. We're having to import talent because we just don't do it well in this country. But mm-hmm. when I'm assessing these executives, both to onboard them into roles and if I'm assessing, you know, where are you strong, where are you weak as a leader? I almost never have an assessment come out that, gee, you know, it's it's your accounting background. You know, you didn't quite come out of the right school, and as an accountant, your your numbers don't add up. It's never that. It's mm-hmm. never that. It's 
you know, you have accounting expertise, you have finance expertise, and you're a humongous jerk to work for. <laughs> I mean, to put it lightly. And so it's not, it's not the hard skills that these yes. executives don't have. It's the, it's the emotional Soft intelligence. Skills. It's the, it's the communication. It's the yes. self-management. It's the in- ability to influence ex- ex- executive presence. It's all of these things that colleges, at least when I was teaching and, and, and was an administrator, colleges were sort of pulling back from for the sake of STEM. And I'm thinking that this isn't the stuff that's getting them in trouble later mm-hmm. in their career. And, you know, we don't want these people to have big career stumbles in their 40s. Like you want to make stakes when you're younger, when the stakes are lower and the higher you get in an organization, um, you know, the, the more costly, visible, public, obvious the mistake is. Mm-hmm. that's not where you want people learning these lessons. You want them learning these lessons when they're relatively young and the stakes aren't good. So like, you know, as a young person, I, I had a, I had a temper. I was pretty mouthy. I got fired from two jobs <laughs> and you know, one, because I wouldn't break the law. So that was not a regrettable loss. And one, because I got lippy with the, with the owner who I thought was, you know, treating me badly. Well, guess what? It's okay to get fired from jobs when you're in your early twenties because the consequences aren't that high. But did I learn to bite my tongue? Yes, I did. (laughs) Do I have to bite my tongue a whole lot in my job today? Yes. If I don't, I could lose, you know, three quarters of, you know, a million dollar project because I couldn't hold my tongue. So, you know, from an educational standpoint, I think, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to shy away from these skills that, you know, go to work and go to home and are really important. And at the end of the day, you know, when you have two smart accountants, the one that's going to be CFO is the one that understands people and relationships and can communicate well. And so I don't like us pulling back on those skills. Well, I wholeheartedly concur with that because, you know, in the positions that I previously occupied with leading and building teams myself, you know, you can teach people the hard skills. You can teach some you can teach something new to somebody, but what I feel yeah. you can't you can't teach is the inherent soft skills. I mean, people mm-hmm. can fake their way through it, but then again, what are relationships based upon? Authenticity, transparency. So if somebody mm-hmm. is questioning your integrity or it, the the congruency of if what you are saying doesn't necessarily match up with the way in mm-hmm. which it's, it's sorry with the way in which it's being uh, emitted energetically, then mm-hmm. when sincerity comes into question question, then I think even if you're just for for facade sake, trying to read the manual to go Mm -hmm. through, okay, I said the right thing, but you know, is it not, if it doesn't connect with you as you're saying it, how is it going to connect with the receiver of the message? So, you know, yes, soft skills, I think, um, soft skills are so imperative and I think they make or break anything personal life, uh, family life, uh, Mm -hmm. professional life all of the above. Uh, but you could certainly teach somebody a new software program or you can teach somebody something uh, that's a new skill. But yeah, who you are as a person, I think transcends naturally across the board and people are either going to connect with you or they're going to reject you. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's a great point. I mean, and, and integrity really gets into, you know, sometimes in, in a really deep coaching relationship, sometimes you can get to that place, right, where people are really finding that true, like, north within themselves and they can, they can find that place of, you know, deep inner integrity, which mm. I think is, is, is so important. I will say it's, it, you know, it takes the right client to want to even go there. Um, yes. but I, but I, but I truly think like that's, 
that's the base, right? That's the base. If everybody had that base, it would be um, amazing to build on that. But it, it takes a lot of work to get there. And then mm-hmm. we've got to shed, you know, a lot of childhood stuff. We've got to shed, you know, our desire to meet certain people's expectations or follow certain norms. Um, but I do think there's a, a subconscious way. And this is what I, I meant about like self-trust. Self-trust to me is, is, is mm-hmm. in the, the entirety area, right? Where it's like, I'm super clear. And then I'll feel really clear to you, I think, um, but that it takes a client that really wants to go there. And I think a lot of people, unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to look under their hood. They're really afraid of what's under their own hood mm. and, um, and they shy away from that depth. And, you know, in coaching, you know, the coaches are all very deep and, and we can always go, we can go as deep as you want to go. Um, and some clients do, and some don't, and, and you can invite it. You can't force it. Um, but when you do get a client that really wants to look at that deeper level of, you know, absolutely, you know, what's my bottom line integrity and, and can let go of pleasing or appeasing or codependence or, um, you know, faking it or pretending or, you know, yes. whatever, whatever the compensation is for not being in integrity with one's self. Um, absolutely. Oh, and you can get them there. It's a blast. But, you know, that's, that's not everybody. Especially the, the, the environments we work in. I mean, these are all executives. So mm-hmm. the, some are very deep and introspective and some just really want to figure out the strategy to help them get there where they want to go. And, and we meet them where they are. Mm-hmm. Well, in my experience, I believe that the most successful people are the people who are most self-aware, the people who are willing to do the inner work, people who are willing to own their own BS, people who in some cases have to deconstruct and recalibrate their whole mindset and -hmm. and let go of the preconceived indoctrinated notions that they grew up believing that intuitively Mm -hmm. uh, no longer resonates with them. But for whatever reason, it's habit forming. So they just go with what they know, knowing that it's not necessarily congruent with who they are. And if you're not in alignment with who you are, that's going to trickle down into every relationship you have, every work dynamic you have. uh, And people are going to go like, what do you actually believe in? What do you stand for? Because that sounds like a great script. You sound pretty well versed, but I'm not really Mm -hmm. believing that you believe that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? I, do, I, I totally agree. And I mean, I think it depends on how we define success. So, you know, what's been sort of frightening to me in both through my career and, and just, you know, in observing, you know, you can have some really, um, some really pretty dark people end up in some really high places where, yes. you know, they can have sociopathic tendencies, narcissistic tendencies, and um, statistically, they can actually be quite successful. Like, I mean, I'm putting success in air quotes because it's, yeah. it's, it's not my version of success. Like I'd like to be happy and, and live with myself, but, right. um, you know, so I think, I think there's two paths to success. I think one is that you're willing to do absolutely anything it takes to get whatever it is that you want. And you don't care the damage that you lay in your path. I think that's one version to commercial success. I mm-hmm. think, I think, um, my version of what I, you know, I strive for and what I w- want to help people try to strive for is a little deeper around, to your point, deconstructing, you know, the because we all, we all grew up inheriting a certain amount of dysfunction. So deconstructing whatever's, you know, dysfunctional about how you operate, replacing mm-hmm. those patterns with things that might be more empowering for you, you know, learning to stop operating out of fear and start operating from a place of courage and truth. I think mm-hmm. there's some really good work. And then I think those folks can also have commercial success, but I think also um, 
I'd like to think it's more comfortable to live in your own skin when you've done that work. And I think, um, and to not be driven by fear, um, and to not have to be always worrying about being found out. I mean, narcissists and, and, and sociopaths, like they have to worry, right. Especially in the day, in the day and age of the internet. And I feel, I feel like we're seeing this be be constructed all around us with all these movements of like, guess what? Now there's technology and anyone can talk to anyone. And so, you know, our secrets are coming out and, you know, if there are patterns of, you know, problematic behavior for someone, the chances that the people that know that can find each other and cooperate and, and do something about it, I think are increasing. So there's a, there's a strange, as much as the internet, I feel like has created this habit of like, you know, trolling and snarkiness. There's also a way that I feel like it's getting harder for people to hide. You know, mm. even employers, we've got Glassdoor, we've got Amplify, employees can come on and say, here's what it's like to work here. Um, and so there's, there's an interesting connection between technology making it harder to hide and I think, you know, as a, as a, as a species, I, I, I feel like we're trying to get to that place where we're willing to really look within and build something stronger within ourselves and give and to, and to let that give us back something more positive and constructive to the world. It's a weird time we're living in. It, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, one thing that I find particularly ironic is that the authentic people are the ones who tend to, within the leadership roles, they grapple with the imposter syndrome, but the people who are narcissists and will do anything to cut throat for whatever reason, they're the ones who, you know, uh, don't, don't bat an eye. Oh, you know, this is a, yay. I believe my crap, you know, therefore you should too. So the the whole notion of imposter syndrome and who subscribes to that, it's generally the people who are really on the right path and are doing the right thing. They just still have to up their level of self-confidence and believability and deservability and own it. A hundred percent accurate. Yeah. So when I'm assessing folks, what's interesting, um, is that I see this in a couple of things. I think one, you know, if I'm doing an assessment on someone and then I, I do, I ask them to do a self-assessment. So I ask them the same questions I'm asking everyone else. And it's, you know, and, and then I get to see, you know, and you've got these two populations and Corn, Corn Ferry will back this up. They've seen the same thing that if I'm assessing an executive and they assess themselves um, lower than everyone else, mm-hmm. um, th- they're going to be, a, they're a high performer. Yeah. If if I have someone where everyone is like, this person is awful, like just awful, like cannot stand it. That same person will be like, I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. <laughs> and so I always do the self-assessment last because I don't want it to taint what I'm hearing from the yes. interviews because that's sort of like, that's the last nail in the coffin. Um, but that's what tells me like this person's out to lunch. And so it is the people that are like the worst, the most the liars and the narcissists. And they, they, they don't think they need help. They think they're amazing. They're, they're creating the most noise and dysfunction around them and people don't appreciate it, (laughs) how they continue to get away with it and get rewarded for it, which I also see every day. It frustrates me, but yeah, but you'll have this super humble, dedicated leader, smart, cares about her people. Um, he's a great mentor to others. They get business results. They'll be like, wow, I mean, I'm okay at this, but I know I have to work on that. Like they, they see their flaws and they can't see how amazing they are. So there's an incredible invert between self-perception and efficacy And Mm -hmm. to your point, you know, people that are high achievers are, you know, struggle with the imposter syndrome and until they don't, I mean, most people can grow out of that eventually, but it takes a lot of data and evidence to say, you don't need to feel like an imposter anymore. Whereas these guys that are totally faking it are like, they, if somebody even calls them out on something, they're like, how could you think that? I'm amazing. It's incredible. (laughs) It's absolutely incredible and mind boggling. 
Yeah, no, no, this is awesome. I'm enjoying this. But we are nearing the bottom of the hour here. So I would like to give you the opportunity, Emily, for people who want to reach out to you and tap into your expertise or uh, find out more or engage in an initial consultation. How do they go best about connecting with you? Um, I can make it super simple with my phone number. It's okay. Two, six, it's 260-417-9204. Um, I can also give a web address, but my last name is really hard to spell, so it, it confounds some people. So it's Burmes Associates, but that's B-E-R-M-E-S Associates.com. But if you just Google Emily Burmes, you'll find me. Again, the last name is B-E-R-M-E-S. Fantastic. Well, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and please know you're always welcome to come back and uh, discuss with myself and the listeners and the podcast subscribers more of what's going on in your world because it is actually quite entertaining too. It is. I love it my is. job. It's yeah. really fun. Yeah. I mean, you're wearing a lot of different hats and I know sometimes when I plug the bio, people think, oh, I don't know if I can necessarily relate to this guest or this conversation. Mm -hmm. But when you break it down, when you're talking about, you know, communication and you're talking about interpersonal skills and you're talking about soft skills and you're talking about being solution focused, really, if you can be a little bit abstract and you can look at the deeper message, you know that this applies to every area and aspect of life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say I've, I got a lot out of this myself. I often take notes and uh, play things back and, and, and I just got a lot out of this. So for what you've done for me and the trajectory of my own growth and development going forward, I just want to say very, very much to you, Emily, I appreciate you. And I think what you're doing in the space is phenomenal and, and the world needs people like you. Leaders need people like you. So uh, thank you for your contributions and for rolling up your sleeves and, and knowing that in some cases it's probably a very thankless and in some cases also an invalidating job so good for you for, sh for showing up <laughs> absolutely I I, I, find, I I love it I love it Fantastic. Um, you know and thank you too for putting your energy into something that that goes out and you know reaches as many people as possible and you know your following is incredible so just happy to be you know a piece of that to get some of the the right information to the right people that are doing the right work it's important Absolutely. Well, once again, I want to say thank you very much to you, Emily, and to the listening audience and to the podcast subscribers. I want to thank you very much for tuning in today's episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. I'm very exceptionally clear on my purpose, which is to uplift you to fear less and to live more. So until next Friday, I wish you a fantastic, safe weekend. Love and gratitude. Take care. All my best. Thank you again, Emily. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio thanking you once again for taking time out of your hectic schedules to tune in to another fantastic weekly episode of Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald. Another shout out of wholehearted gratitude to Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald's corporate sponsors, Helton Honda, Forever, and Aha That. Your reviews, clicks, shares, downloads, feedback, and testimonials are always appreciated. Lisa's purpose and mission is to uplift you to fearless and to live more. To appear as a prospective guest on Living Fearlessly with Lisa McDonald or to connect with Lisa regarding her suite of products and services, you can reach Lisa at livingfearlesslywithlisa.com. And until next week, our fearless friends, this is Al Cole from CBS Radio telling you to be your own hero. Be your own hero, be your own leader, and be your own best friend.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.